Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today to raise the bat and tip the helmet to the pavilion is my colleague, Mr. Tim Perkins. How are you, Perko? Very well, Mr. Hasler. 50 runs on the board. Indeed. Not bad, is it? 50 episodes of this podcast of Indeed, ours. A tidy knock, a tidy you might say. Knock. A tidy knock. Did you score many 50s as a young cricketer, Daniel? Not too many. Not too many. I can remember scoring 100. That really sticks out because it was the only 100 I ever got. And it was off the last ball, very Steve War-esque. Oh, wow. Um, Excellent. But, um, but yeah, that was the only one. And it was on like a fifth team type <laughs> affair and, you know, on a dog track somewhere. It was, it was average, but it was, but it's, hey, it's a century, my friend. Well, I never hit a century. I don't think I even got even close to that. Mm. But maybe, maybe hey. a couple of years from now, a couple of With years the, down the track, indeed. we'll get to episode number 100 and we'll really raise the bat. <laughs> we will. And... We'll, Kiss the helmet, Kiss Michael the helmet. Slater style. Yeah, Righty, um, well, we've got a, a pair of cracking guests actually for um, for today's episode um, to mark our fiftieth. We've uh, never done one like this before. In that, mm. our guests today are actually father and son. Indeed, and some t- people mistake you for my father sometimes oh. when we're out and about. Um, but you know, that's. <laughs> I can't imagine how that could possibly happen, Dan. <laughs> But there you go. Indeed, indeed. Right. Who have we got on? We have got on Ed and Peter Shine. They, together, um, run the Organisational Culture and Leadership Institute, which works with all manner of organisations. And we're talking huge organisations. We're talking military. We're talking pharmaceutical. We're talking medical. We're talking corporates. And they go in and essentially help them around organisational leadership and really build it around um, people rather than the policies and the procedures. And it's that emphasis on the people that really attracted us to, to their work. And that will, I imagine, really be music to the ears of a lot of our listeners who really want to move away from this mad emphasis on policy and procedure. Box ticking. Box ticking and, yeah, and yeah. administration and really focus on the people yeah. uh, that we work with and bringing out the best in those people. Yeah. Which is what leadership is, right? That's what leadership is, that bringing the best out of people. And, you know, Ed Shine, you know, in, in 2012, uh, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Leadership Association. He's a heavy hitter. Yeah. Uh, he's someone we've all got something to learn from. Yeah, so, so he knows his stuff. Ed, Ed actually is Professor Emeritus um, at MIT. And as Tim mentioned, um, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Leadership Association. His son, Peter, is um, a strategy consultant in Silicon Valley. And he works, um, as I say, extensively on the rollout, if you like, and implementing um, what it means to uh, be more humble in our leadership. Together, they work together, and together they've written um, countless books. And the one we're really going to dig into is the, the notion of humble leadership and humble inquiry. What does the idea or the, the concept of being humble and, and having humility, what does that have uh, to offer us um, in, in our leadership? So I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome both Ed and Pete to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's great to talk to you all in, in uh, Australia and elsewhere. Glad to be here. So um, humble inquiry, it's, uh, it's an interesting um, joining of, of two words there. Uh, what, what we thought we'd do is just kick off and sort of say, so why is 
humble inquiry. Why do you position that as a, as a vital leadership skill today, particularly when it's not uncommon for leaders to be sort of portrayed as, as kind of like that heroic come in and, you know, and do everything and, and save the day kind of thing. What, what role or place does the word humble even have in, in leadership or inquiry? Well, we'll both answer that in probably different ways, but the first thought that comes to mind is that the tasks of leadership, and we mentioned leadership more than the leader, have become so complex and interdependent that the, the person who finds themselves wanting to improve things is not able to figure it all out by him or herself. So the primary use of the word humility is humility in the face of complexity. We call it here and now humility. Even the most arrogant person in the world no longer is able to solve some of the problems of the world by him or herself. So the word humble is necessary to warn us that the task of leadership creates humility in any of us who choose to try to do anything that we might call leadership. And I guess I would add that, you know, there may be people listening to this podcast who, who just don't even buy that. We've gotten some feedback that, um, you know, humble may right away turn people off from this series of books, Humble Leadership, Humble Consulting, Humble Inquiry, in two editions. And I guess we'd say to that, um, fine, but I think we'll have to agree to disagree because the way we define humble uh, in, in that sense of here and now humility, that you don't have the answers, the people around you do, and your job as a leader is to, is to collect information to um, maximize the relevant knowledge that you have to make the best decisions. That's what we think leadership really is, instead of some sort of form of, um, you know, uh, bravado or arrogance or a demonstration of power. Um, because you can demonstrate all the power you want, but if you're always wrong, because you're missing facts that are in the room but you didn't have the humility to try to gather them up so that you could make the best decisions, that, that sort of arrogant decision-making may be relatively uninformed decision-making. That's what we're getting at with humility. As, as Peter puts it very nicely, this is his quote, the, the person who asks questions with humble inquiry may discover information to questions that he never thought to ask. Mm. Interesting. You talk about, um, Peter, there, the idea of bravado and arrogance. I suppose the flip side of that is that people feel that they have to have all the answers. They've been elevated into this position of leadership and even quite a humble person may feel, I'm here, I'm earning these the big bucks, I'm in the big chair, I need to be the one, I need to be the strongest signal in the room, I need to be the one with all the answers. I wonder, so I suppose they're, they're two sides of the same coin, different leaders might come from either of those, that sort of arrogance or that, that belief that they have to really 
you know, steer the ship and run the show. I wonder how do we, because with humility comes this sense of vulnerability, this idea of going to your people and saying, let's share our ideas, let's work on this problem together. What are your thoughts on how do, how do we reframe vulnerability as a strength? Well, I think you can't separate it from the actual tasks that leaders face. There are still lots of problems in the world where leaders have enough information that they can play that role that you describe and not be vulnerable. But when someone like General McChrystal writes a book called Team of Teams and says, you know, I'm supposed to know what's going on on the ground, but I realize that it's the troops who are out there who really know what's going on. So I have no choice but to let them call the shots. And if, if I'm going to be the big shot and second guess them, like General MacArthur did in Korea, then I'm going to end up being an idiot because I made some lousy decisions. And I think more and more doctors and businessmen and uh, other people in leadership positions are realizing the vulnerability is not a choice. It's the reality. They don't know enough. They are vulnerable. And so better to get the troops involved than to make bad decisions. And I guess I would just add that maybe the alchemy is not around accepting vulnerability. Our position would be you better accept vulnerability because it's reality. But it's it's the degree to which you represent it, the de degree to which you show it in front of the people who you are leading or you are expecting to be leading. Um, I think there's always that sense of, are you all, you know, the leader and the team, are you all fully conscious of the expectations that you have of each other? If, if, the, if the people who are being led are always just expecting that the leader has the answers and their role is to take the answers and move on in that direction, then in some respects, you may then end up creating that arrogant leader because the followers are expecting it. But we're sort of saying this message to both the leader and the followers. Don't ex expect that. Expect that the leader um, has accepted his or her vulnerability. And part of your role as the followers is to help the leader get you all to a better place. And also, I think the other, the other point about this is that this idea that as a leader, you have to sort of demonstrate your power. Do you? The, the, the people in the room know you're the leader. Why do you have to demonstrate that with some sort of ham-fisted, you know, pounding on the table or something like that? They know you're the leader. Do you, you know, maybe you'd, you'd be better off um, disarming them by throwing them off and asking them a question that's, 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 that puts them in a position of power. And we give some examples of this in the, in the Humble Leadership book. 
Um, and interestingly, a lot of those examples come out of the U.S. military where you've got these huge hierarchies and you've got leadership decisions that are usually in the face of life and death. And they've figured out that, boy, they really need the insight that's in that room. They don't want to just be perceived as, you know, we shouldn't be picking on, uh, on you know, 20th century U.S. military leaders, but they don't want to be perceived as just General Patton. They want to be, you know, perceived as leading a, a team of teams. Um, so I, I think we're... we're we're sort of suggesting that that we see a lot of modern military leaders is really getting this. And the reason is because they know that there's way too much information. There's way too much VUCA, right? We refer to, vol to, to, uh, to volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And, um, you know, military leaders are kind of forced to accept that. Um, and they're accepting it in a world in in their space, which is, it doesn't get any more high stakes. We're not talking about we're not talking about you know a budget. We're not talking about a product. We're talking about life and death. And and they're getting a handle on this idea of devolving responsibility to the you know as low. I hate that idea of hierarchies, but you know as low as we can. It's the people on the floor. And yet you go into a boardroom or a staff room or a, or a footy uh, football change room. And you've got everyone looking around, not knowing what to do because they haven't been given that space. Yeah. yeah. Well, and one other point, humility is often put into a moral space that it's, isn't it better to be humble or isn't humble a great trait? And I think I feel very strongly that our argument is a very pragmatic argument. It has nothing to do with being the the humble person, uh, the wonderful person on an ethical basis. It has everything to do with who has the information. Mm. And in the modern, complex VUCA world, the people who find themselves in leadership positions, de facto don't have enough information mm. to actually call the shots. That's reality. It's pragmatic to be humble in the face of not knowing everything. The other just, um, you know, framework we like to add is the, um, we have a, a friend from the Institute from the Future in Palo Alto, um, Bob Johansson, who's written some leadership books. And one of the framings that he makes is that the, the modern leaders or leaders of the future are going to have to have a very clear idea of the distinction between certainty and clarity, that so much of the idea of the, you know, the, 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 the boss in charge is certain of a, of a direction that he wants to take that team or that company. Um, but, uh, you know, what if the leader um, is much more interested in clarity? She's saying, I need to have all of the information so I have a clear picture of everything that's going on. That clarity to make decisions is far more important in a real in an increasingly complex world than the certainty of one accurate one one precise direction. Certainty gives that idea of rigidity as well, isn't it? It's yes, very, exactly. Very unlikely to waver if you're a hundred percent certain. Exactly. Yeah. 
So in the cold light of day, when when you know we're sitting around and talking about this stuff, it strikes you as being obvious. It strikes you as as common sense. And I imagine most people listening as they're driving or you know jogging around the park to this, you know, and going, yeah, well, it's obvious. What in your experience when you go in, it's obvious, but it's not apparent. <laughs> is I guess where I'm going because I'm, a, you know, when when you go into organisations or when you're sitting down and interviewing people and in, in, in about their experiences in such organisations, what is it about whether it's cult, our society at large or whether it's organisational cultures or just the culture within teams? What is it that prevents something which, in the cold light of day, I imagine most people will go, well, yeah, obviously. What is it that gets then in the way and, and makes people forget all this? We, we have a couple of chapters that deal with just that question. Why, why are we more likely to want to tell? And why are we more likely to be preoccupied with action and tasks than building relationships? And I think at least in, in Western maybe especially U.S. culture, I think that has been historically the source of success, to, to know everything, and the hero is the person who has the answer, has the certainty, uh, and the kinds of frontier tasks, I think, allowed for that kind of thing because the information was more available. I can't, I, I think we have to accept that the world is a different world today. That the very thing that worked to build Australia, the US, and other countries into the powers they become is no longer valid as a decision making process. And that therefore the culture itself has to change. And an extreme version of this, we we argue that the, the prelude to this kind of relationship with, with the followers is you have to build that relationship. You build that relationship through asking them questions about themselves and revealing more about yourself so that you will both feel psychologically safe to tell each other what you really know as part of that process, that is culturally not particularly popular, but is essential. So I do feel like Sisyphus climbing the mountain, that we're fighting a lot of powerful cultural norms, and yet our view is that if you don't, we're not going to make good decisions. We're going to burn with the uh, global climate change. <laughs> we, we, I mean, we have lots of lore about the, you know, driven, highly individualistic, successful entrepreneur, take no prisoners, you know, scattered bodies behind him or her, and, um, you know, quite Machiavellian. I mean, that's that's the business lore, right, that sort of dominates. Those are the stories that we talk about, um, you know, the fountainhead or, or um, you know, the, the, the great stories of, of, you know, heroic entrepreneurs. Um, 
you know, we look forward to a day when there's a few of those good stories about really good team builders, you know, people who created really, you know, really effective um, connections and, and, and processes that allowed some sort of synergy that was just beyond the will of that one person. One of the examples we love to give as we talk about, um, you know, sort of that recognition of interdependency is the, um, I think it was the Japanese four by 100 relay team that ended up with a silver medal. You know, the Jamaicans won because they were faster than everybody. Um, but the U.S. didn't, did, were disqualified because they couldn't pass the baton. They had the skill and the speed to challenge the Jamaicans, but they didn't even make it to the final round because they dropped the baton. Whereas the Japanese were so efficient in the, in the teamwork part of what they were doing that you know, their, their foot speed was good enough if their team speed was better than everybody else. And um, we have to have more sort of stories of how that worked and how people can can sort of rally around that because for the time being we're still going to have stories about the you know the heroic individual well it raises a whole question about feminine values women leaders might be closer to demonstrating the ability to to be humble uh, in their information gathering than men who are trapped by these norms of rugged individualism. It's something we need to think about and speculate about. We, um, there were many times in writing Humble Leadership and Humble Inquiry that we sort of wanted to talk about that. And one of the influences in writing the Humble Leadership book was Frederick Laloux and his work on reinventing organizations. And he has sections where he talks about feminine values. Um, but <laughs> that was just a bridge too far for us and thinking about, well, who's going to read this and are people gonna, just going to be completely turned off <laughs> by these, you know, softies from California? Well, we're trying to, we're, we're, we think there's something there, but we don't want to be quite out there and saying it is, a, it's because it isn't, it's, it's the feminine part that's a little bit too kind of cisgendered, right? It's, we're talking about, a value around information sharing and collaboration that's a that's sort of that 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 leaves behind the the fiercely individualistic kind of frontiersman um you know go out on your own and you know and conquer the territory um it's that's that that had its place in time but we just don't think in modern business or medicine today that that works anymore off air you talked both of you talked quite glowingly about uh your views on jacinda ardern and the way her and her team are leading things in new zealand um which is quite interesting obviously you've come out of a very different style of leadership in the states um what is it that you're seeing there um that that would reinforce what you're saying here about this idea of that sort of feminine approach to leadership or, or what could be considered uh, a, a more female approach to leadership um, well, I mean, I, I guess I would say that, that I'm going to struggle to come up with the 
the some of the quotes, but some of the things that I've heard her say are just just so correct. <laughs> They're just so sort of modern. I, I mean, I think one of the things that that I heard her say is that um, growth that generates um, environmental catastrophe or um, or a a income distribution. Um, a growing income distribution isn't worth it, and that communicates a value that that that's a little bit more about a sort of leadership for the for the, um, the you know the common, not for the for the the privileged or for the um, uh, you know or 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 for the individual. Um, there's a there's an idea of of sort of it, it's it's a it's kind of a collective mentality, and you know that idea of collectivism is also very fraught, right? Because that starts to sound like socialism or communism, which of course you can't even say to an audience in the U.S. right without getting <laughs> you know scarlet lettered as a as a communist. Um, but I think there there has to be sort of a modern recognition that thinking about the collective good of what you're doing may be far more important than your party or yourself. And that's the problem that, that the U.S. has had with our presidents over the years, that sometimes, you know, the self and the party is more important than the country. And... Um, uh, so, Ed, I don't know if you have other thoughts about... Just well, I think one other deep thought about this is what a colleague of mine at MIT, a woman by the name of Lottie Balin, who writes a lot about why women continue to get less pay and have all these glass ceilings, she points out that the very definition of work in organizations is generally put in male terms, accomplishment, achievement, getting things done. And the reward systems in organizations are built on that same concept of work. And so what you do not find is a reward system either in a hospital or in a business that rewards relationship building or that rewards uh, mentoring, or that rewards developing your subordinates. It's in, the, it's in the official ideology of the organization. We develop our people. But the hard fact of what we reward is almost exclusively accomplishment, achievement, which tend to be male values. And so I think she argues that until that changes, until work begins to be defined as intrinsically relational, we're going to continue to see these uh, these biases against paying women equally and so on. So one of those elements um, that perhaps fits in there uh, is this idea of listening and curiosity. Um, I know we've heard you speak before about the idea of the proximate problem as opposed to perhaps the real problem, and that fits very nicely with our sort of coaching work of really delving into 
not just dealing with what appears to be the problem on the surface, but what's actually underlying that. And that, that really requires deep listening and curiosity. We're just wondering, what do you consider to be the relationship between curiosity and the humility and the humble leadership that you speak about and write about? I want to tackle that just in terms of my relationship to Peter. When we decided to work together, was it in my interest to train him or be curious what he would bring to the relationship? And it seemed very obvious that I had more experience than he did, and I could have easily said, all right, if we're going to work together, here's how you're going to do it, because I've had 50 years to do it. And yet I found myself genuinely curious. Well, this is interesting. We've never worked together in this kind of writing relationship. I wonder what he will bring to the party. And that has proven to be the best way to work, because then I appreciate the novelty of what he brings, and he perhaps appreciates some aspects of what I bring that he hadn't considered. So the curiosity enables us to build a decent working relationship, and that should be the relationship between every boss and every direct report. They should get to know each other. Um, one of the sort of central tenets of the of humble inquiry is training yourself to ask questions that you don't know the answer to, because so much of our um, communication and influence is is you know could be thought of as sort of guiding the witness, right? We're we're trying to sort of get our point across in the way we ask questions. Um, but it's the, 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 the key, the humble inquiry is that we, that we re keep reminding ourselves, we have to be asking questions that we don't know the answer to. And that forces you in the way, in, in the direction of curiosity. If you really don't care, then you're really not going to ask questions. <laughs> if you really do care, then you, the, the peep, humans are naturally curious. Don't stifle it. Allow that natural curiosity um, to come through. But it has to start with I rem continually reminding yourself, I really do care what this other person has to say. And I'm going to try to draw it out of that person, or I'm going to try to draw us closer together by asking rather than telling. And again, I think that's that's where you can tap in to that natural curiosity that humans have. So you spoke there, Ed, about the relationship, um, you know, obviously a father father and son team. And so the, the idea of the personal relationship, I'm assuming, was well and truly established before the idea of working together. I'm, I'm tipping that the day that Pete was born, you weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book with this guy. Um, but I'm wondering, for people whose relationships in the workplace are more predicated on a hierarchy and a job description, and um, these are your roles and, and just do your job, 
Talk to me a little bit about the mindset that the leader needs to think of, because you went as far to say, you know, everyone should have the kind of relationship you have with Peter, with with their work colleagues, with their subordinates, as you, as you put it, or their direct reports. What's the argument for that? Why not keep it? Because I, 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 we work with plenty of people who go, hey, I'm not, I don't want to bring personal stuff into it. You know, I just need them to do their job. What, what's the argument for, for taking a different approach? Uh, two, two points about it. First of all, the information point that if I'm the boss and don't have all the information and just tell my direct report, stay in your lane, do your job, I have provided that person no incentive whatsoever to tell me what's really going on. And what we see over and over again in organizations is that the scandals, the safety problems, the things that go wrong are because subordinates have no incentive. They even have disincentives to tell the boss what they really know. So we see the transactional, what we call the level one relationship, to be the source of most organizational problems. And that unless you create a relationship, a level two, more personal relationship with your direct reports, they won't feel psychologically safe or have any incentive to give you the information that you both need to get the job done properly. So we think of the old hierarchy and transaction as an obsolete dinosaur that slowly but surely is already going away and will have to go away even faster. With with some exceptions where there may be certain kinds of work or certain industries where that you know primarily kind of level one transactional relationship as we describe it. Um, is efficient, and maybe it's more efficient. But then the other argument we would say is, but those may be the kinds of work and the kinds of jobs that are most at risk of being automated by, you know, AIs or IAs, whatever, however you like to think of that, um, you know, intelligent decision system that doesn't need that extra level of um, connectedness and um, communication that's outside of that role or that task. If, if your work really is truly transactional and the system is defining those transactions, eh, maybe you don't need to have a what we call a personized relationship with the people you work with. But you may also be you know most at risk <laughs> of um, you know, the the system being able to do the work without you. You mentioned this word that you use, personalizing here. Can you tell us a little bit um, about the idea of how do people who are in situations that Dan referred to a minute ago when they sort of say, you know, my personal stuff, I don't need to bring my personal stuff here to work um, and, and that should stay outside because I've got my work. Can you explain to us exactly what you mean by that idea of really sharing that personal stuff because it's not it's not about telling people personal things that some people might want to hold on to. Can you tell us the distinction and when you're talking about personalizing there, what that might actually look like? If there's something that that leaves you sort of compromised, 
at work, you, you should be able to tell the people you work with that. And I think that's part of what we're getting at is that there are, we are whole human beings and there are things that happen, um, you know, between 6 p.m. and 9 a.m. or whatever our workday is that may very well be relevant because they may be impacting our effectiveness. Um, and and that's that's kind of what we're getting at, is that as a leader, we really think you want to develop that degree of connection and that degree of psychological safety that those uh, important, albeit personal details, if they become part of the workday, which often they do, you know, the kid's sick or, um, you know, the, the parent is ailing or all these, these things don't stay out of the workplace. We can pretend they do, but they don't. I guess what we're, what we're getting at is that can you create a substrate of trust and openness that you'll allow those things um, into the workplace so that you can accept them and move on, right? Because if they're just there interfering and you don't have a way of accepting them and moving on, then you end up less efficient. I, I think the word trust comes in there. Uh, the most dramatic example that, that I can give of this, and it links back to curiosity, is in in the young startup company Digital Equipment Corporation, where I was uh, brought in as a possible consultant, because they they had you know started they were all engineers and Ken Olson the the president and founder asked his administrator to find some professor from MIT who might be able to help them with social stuff and group dynamics and stuff. But he wanted to meet that person. So on the day that I was supposed to meet Ken Olson to find out if there would be any chemistry between us, I wandered into his office. And the first thing I noticed was a bunch of canoe paddles and photographs of woods on the wall. And it never occurred to me to stay quiet. I really, my curiosity overwhelmed me. And I said to Ken Olson, what are all those? And he just lit up like a candle to tell me about his hobby of every summer flying up into the Canadian woods where he and a couple buddies spent uh, a month being incommunicado and went on and on for about 10 minutes and then said, why don't I come to the Friday top management operations committee and see if I can help? He didn't ask me anything. He didn't ask me what I did. He just must have felt that if I was curious <laughs> about those canoe paddles and was interested in his story, that was enough for him to trust me. And I thought that was an an amazing example of how easy it is if you let curiosity flow, you never know what you might discover and how quickly you might be able to build a relationship. Absolutely. And we've used that word personalize a few times. And we've actually, um, we first heard you use that word um, 
in in a podcast with Dave Stahovey at the Coaching for Leaders uh, podcast a, f- a few years ago now, and si- we since then put it in our value statement and um, at, at uh, in our team here. And you know, listening to you speak, you know, I'm thinking about so many teams we work with and clients, you know, one on one stuff. But we know as, almost probably as much about their home stuff as they do their their work stuff. And but it's really fascinating how many times people see our value statement and go, "Oh, hang on, you've you've made it. You've got a typo. You've got you've made an error there. Shouldn't that be personalized?" <laughs> and I was wondering if you could just share with us how you came about to with the word personalize and how it differentiates from personalizing or or tailoring or whatever other word we might use in in its place peter has that story yeah well it it, uh it there was a chapter in or a a section in ed's book humble consulting that followed the initial uh edition of humble inquiry that that had it that was personalization and so there was one point where we were doing a workshop with some people and we wrote it on the board but in the haste of running it on, writing it on the board, the AL got dropped. So it just was written out as personalization. And um, one of the people in the workshop said, is that a mistake or are you introducing a new term? <laughs> and the answer was yes. <laughs> because we, it, it, but but the, the point was clear that, that I started getting uncomfortable with this idea of personalization because everything's personalized these days, right? You've got a personalized HR stack that that is that is bespoke to you. It's it's your HR, you know, uh, your your benefits that's uniquely tailored to you. That's great. We've got you know we're we're moving to the point where practically anything we buy can be bespoke to our exact personality and needs. We're talking about something different. We're talking about a level of whole person to whole person connection that um, that, that allows that, that, the, the, that builds on trust and openness and allows that information sharing that, that increases effectiveness, certainly, because you are creating a bigger decision framework. You're creating more information with which to make the right decisions. And hopefully over time, it creates more efficiency because you know each other better and you, you can start to answer each other's, you know, to finish each other's sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we hope, you know, that, that people will get the sense that it creates an acceleration and doesn't create a, a bogging down and sort of gabbing about personal life. That's not the point. The point is that um, you really do know each other well enough to you know move in sync rather than just moving in your roles and you know staying in your lanes. That can be more efficient, but if the if the direction that you're heading changes dramatically. Uh, you may not be anywhere near as resilient to handle that dramatic change in direction of the company or in the, the team that you're working on or the project that you're working on. So um, personizing is a way of creating that level of openness and trust that, that gets you to be more resilient down the road. Whereas personalization strikes me as far more individual. So that were, you know, it's personalized to me, whereas personalization is between you and me. That's exactly. how I'm hearing yep. it. 
That's exactly right. It's yeah. creating a mutuality yeah. that personalization is one way. Mm. Personalization is two way. It's mm. bi-directional. Yeah. You've, you've put a very compelling argument there for it. Um, how do you respond to leaders who say they just don't have time for that level of personalization? Well, the first way I respond to that one is to tell them the Ken Olson story. My, my vetting interview took exactly 10, 15 minutes. Uh, mm. I don't think uh, this notion that question asking is an interminable process also creeps in. And we have to emphasize that humble inquiry is an attitude which is timeless. Uh, I can ask you something very personal right now which would destroy time because you'd have to answer right now. But I have to then listen to you and respond appropriately. So the whole unit of asking and listening and responding only takes seconds in most conversations. And any one of those units can be very fast or very slow depending on what you learn. So the, the time issue, I think, is independent of this concept of humble inquiry as an attitude. It may depend on the complexity of what you're trying to solve, wh whether you're going to have to take more time or not. The other example is the, the doctor who's only got 10 minutes to see the patient. And, you know, everyone complains. Do they have time for personal or for humble inquiry? And I say, of course they do. That doctor can walk in to the patient with a big smile on his face and say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Guess what? We're both caught in this modern bureaucracy. They've given us all of 10 minutes, and let's make the most of it. What's on your mind? I think that would be personizing the doctor-patient relationship instantly if it's done with curiosity and caring. And that doesn't even take 10 minutes. So I think we have to separate the attitude and the questioning from the notion of lengthy interrogations or long therapeutic interviews. That's not what it is at all. And I think the, the other, maybe the other part of that question is, is there this sense that this personization can't possibly scale across a large organization? And um, yeah, I, I think that's right, that the CEO is, is going to have a hard time developing, you know, open and trusting relationships with everybody in that organization. But on the other hand, the CEO better recognize that it, it could be very important to develop those relationships with the other people in the, you know, in the C-suite or in the board, um, because that's, that's their information sharing, you know, sphere that's most critical. Um, I, so I, I guess part of the answer is it really needs to be a value 
that's communicated in some simple actions. Um, and, you know, one, one of our trivial examples is, you know, in any one hour meeting and, you know, you're a CEO and you've got seven one hour meetings that day, are you taking any time to check in on kind of, you know, doing a temp check with the people in the room to see, you know, what's happening? Are you doing a check-in? Or are you plowing straight into the agenda and communicating that all that's important to you is the content of what you're doing and you're not interested or taking light of the context of what you're doing? Generally, I, I think, I think you know, people who, are, who get to the sea level don't do that. I think people who get to the sea level are actually very good at recognizing the importance of managing content and context. But it is, it has to be a value. It has to be a value that, that, um, that if it starts with the CEO, it has to go with a lot of the key reports to the CEO in that, that open and trusting relationship. And it probably needs to exist with the board as well. It strikes me that when, you know, because we hear this a lot, you know, we, oh, we don't have time for this, we don't have time for that. And it, it, my response my response usually is, well, you do have time. It's just currently filled up with all the problems that come about because you've not done this earlier in the piece. And, you know... Exactly. Or you say, I'm redefining my job so that I take that time. I'm, I'm clearing 20% of what I do. And you board and you other C-suite and you other keep key leaders know it that I'm going to do that Mm. and let's all figure out a way to make that adjustment because we know that maybe this quarter it's going to hurt but down the road that's going to be beneficial which leads me beautifully to the the final question I want to put to you is a lot of what we're hearing here if, if people did this um you know from the ground up so to speak from day one then we might avoid some of the more toxic environments that we get, some of the more, you know, the dramas that play out in the workplace. And so for a new leader coming in, I can, or a new organization starting up, I could imagine someone listening to this going, oh, I'm definitely going to do this. What I'm interested in is what about the people listening who are in a toxic environment? How might that person, although those group of people, go about changing that culture from, from, you know, from their position. And I know that leaving is always an option and I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't be, but what if, what if they actually want to stay and they want to make it work? What are some tangible first steps that they could go about turning around a a culture, which is perhaps becoming toxic or is, or is perhaps already there? Well, the same logic applies that you, you have to recognize where there is complexity in the task performance and ask your boss uh, or your peers in in your team or the people below you the more personalized task-related questions. Even something like, how are we doing? You know, should we review this decision? Uh, why, Why did we do this yesterday? Uh, can be task-related, personalized, 
kinds of questions. And if no one responds, then you might leave, you know. If you keep trying and nobody's interested in being more personal, then get out of there. But I think the process builds on itself. If you display interest in in others and how they work, or a question like, that was a neat idea. How did you come up with that? Those kinds of things, upward, sideways, downward, have a positive impact and might just open the door to someone else doing it and starting a positive feedback loop. I don't know any other way to do it. Yeah, but I think also um, maybe embrace it with some intentionality. Tell people what you're that what you're getting at is that you you know you're you're in a staff meeting. Um, you don't want to plow right into the agenda. You want to do a check in. You want to get people starting to open up a little bit about um, uh, what's on their mind that day. You know, do do some of that sort of that presencing or mindfulness stuff just as a way of breaking out of the roll to roll patterns that everybody falls into. We got we've got these packed agendas and we're we're going to we're going to get through every item and and uh, we might as well be machines. But, you know, um, it, there I think there has to be some willful intentionality to spend some time on on the context on the how are we are do, how we're doing not what we're doing i don't i don't I, it because i think you're right in the question that it's not necessarily natural um, because we've got massive to-do lists you know you know it's all of just the buzz 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 of the work that we have to do but without sort of saying wait a second we need to take five minutes out of this 50 or 10 minutes out of this hour and and ask ourselves how are we doing um it's 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 sort of a blunt instrument but it also might really you know create a great deal of acceleration down the road if you're able to do that yeah it sounds like a great investment in time and you know those wise wise leaders are are leading in this way already and um and for everyone else who's listening you know to be able to you know justify taking that time and as you said peter you know there, there might be a, an immediate impact of of lack of um accomplishment something might come off the agenda in that first one but what you're doing is building that culture and those relationships so that you're really opening up everything that's in the room as opposed to you know closing it down um it's been a total pleasure for us to uh have the opportunity to speak with you both today we've been big fans for for several years now so we really appreciate everything that you've uh, shared with us and um for people who are listening here what's what's the best way that they can find out more about your work because i know that not just books but also the institute um how, how do people find out about you uh, well, our, uh, we, we have something called the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute. Um, that's a very grandiose title for just the <laughs> partnership between Ed and me. <laughs> it also happens to be the title of Ed's most successful textbook, Organizational Culture and Leadership. So we just tapped, you know, Institute onto the end of it and called it our partnership. OCLI.org is our website. 
and you can contact us through that. And um, I wish I spent, you know, half of my day updating it. I don't, but <laughs> we do projects, um, consulting work. We've done a lot of work with healthcare systems and, um, uh, and we continue to sort of come up with the next book that we're going to write. And, um, uh, and, and so the, the website has descriptions of, of who we are and other books that we've written. So, um, that's probably the best place to start. Well, we'll make sure we put that link in the show notes there. Um, but yeah, on, on the behalf of our listeners and, and uh, Tim and I, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, been a real treat. Thank you. Thank, yeah, thank you so much. I, 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 I do want to say, Dan, I think you in the some of the comments before, while we were setting this up, you asked us if we had any quotes that we wanted to share. Okay. And so I did have one and I really, and, and I've shared it in, in other contexts and I think Ed has one too, but I, I do, I do want to share this because we've been talking about it, but it's just, it really rings for me. Um, it's from a obscure play that T.S. Eliot wrote in 1934, um, where he was describing human beings kind of facing really tough existential challenges. And he, he talked about dreaming of systems so perfect, no one will need to be good. And to me, that just really captures that, that we, we do so much in modern work to create cis perfect systems that will get everybody very efficient. You know, whether it's an OKR system or, or we're you know, we're, we're going to really go hard with agile software development, or we've, we've adopted lean in our hospital, but all of these great systems are never so perfect that we, the, as human beings don't have to still be good and good means flexible. It means relating to each other in the right ways. And it means, you know, coming to work with, with values that are consistent with the company that you work for. So let's just not be so perfect that we that we don't need to be good. Ed? No, uh, well, I I would just start with something quite different. Everything is an intervention. Every conversation, everything you do is not just that. It's an intervention in someone else's life. Think about conversation that way as a series of interventions. And being really, I guess, mindful and deliberate about those. All right. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time from the States with us. And um, we look forward to our next conversation with you somewhere further down the track. Likewise. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having us. So interesting chat there, Tim. Yeah, really interesting chat. And uh, might I say they were lovely, humble fellows. Indeed. One of the things I was um, wondering is, you know, like how... It, especially when we brought up the idea of the toxic workplace and um you know and, and we said well what might you do if you you're in such a space and they get they sort of suggested well you know we could just start asking questions and and I, and I wonder as a leader perhaps that's easier to do than if what if I'm sitting in that meeting and I don't feel I have a voice how easy is it for me to speak and go well actually I don't want to jump into the agenda straight away I want to take five minutes to check in you know I'm wondering as, as we sort of play this out, like different ways that we could help people listening here, you know, how do you introduce these kind of things that 
they might be hearing on the podcast, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we talk to people like The Shines, you know, we're really hoping for our listeners that they're going to have some real tangibles that you go, ah, yeah, definitely, I can take that in and we can implement that tomorrow and that'll make a difference. And as you and I have discussed uh, previously, that doesn't necessarily work out that way that we don't get those real tangibles. But I know you've suggested before, Dan, that someone like a listener here can, if, if you're inspired by something that you've heard there and you do want to implement that in your environment, then perhaps you could say at a staff meeting, well, you know, I've, I've, I heard this really interesting talk and I've got a link for you mm. all here. Mm. You know, you can have a listen to it because when – I know when I get inspired by something because I've read something or I've listened to something or I've met somebody, it's hard to translate that mm. inspiration to somebody else. It's like when you've been to a conference and no one else went with you. Exactly. Yeah, and you exactly. go back, oh, this is amazing, and it never quite lands no, the same exactly. way. And Which is a really good reason why you should never go to a conference on your own. Like I think mm. that's a really great investment for schools, for example, to mm. send a couple of people together. And one, you know, and some language that you might use is something just as simple as saying, hey, I, I listened to this, I found it interesting. What, what do you guys think? And using it, again, not to try and um, if we really tap into um, – you know, the, the chat with Ed and Peter there, you know, it's not to say that we know that we should be doing this. You know, we should be somewhat humble about humble inqu inquiry. And so just putting it forward as a, as a topic for um, a, a conversation and, and being patient, I guess, as well, and, and not expecting people to suddenly jump on board with a brand new thing, which just because you find it um, compelling, um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of hoping or expecting others will. But you know, as we often say at the end of these um, episodes, if you found this interesting, then please do share it far and wide through your socials on, on through your uh, business emails, however you want to do it. And also by liking the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts or subscribing to those podcasts and commenting and leaving a rating. What that does is actually tells the those platforms that there's there's something to these episodes and it just helps other people come across and, and find find these podcasts for themselves and in the same light of um curiosity and humble leadership if uh you know as you've heard dan say at the end of these episodes before if you know someone or if you've read something or if you're thinking about uh, an issue that you think might be really useful to share with other people who listen to this sort of a podcast then please get in in contact with us um Yep, and you get in contact with us uh, at thehabitsofleadership.com and you can click on the podcast page there and you can drop us a line. And you can also find out more about the work we do and our Habits of Leadership Academy as well by heading over to habitsofleadership.com. But until next time, good chat today, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It was, uh, it was an excellent opportunity. So we hope you as our listeners have enjoyed that. Indeed we do. And until next time, take care, take it easy.